to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Bullock. And welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fullick. And as always, we like to talk about things related to emergency management, disaster planning, business continuity management, crisis management, resiliency, and anything that can be related to those topics. Speaking of topics, if there is something you'd like us to talk about on the show, or you'd like to come on the show to talk about something, please go to the webpage uh, on the Voice America site, For the show, underneath the graphic, there is a button that says send host an email or something something to that effect. Send me an email. I do get all emails and I do respond to everything I get. If you're a vendor and you'd like to talk about a product or service or uh, sponsor the show, you can get a hold of me the same way and we can send you some information about that as well. I'd like to remind everyone that I will be speaking at the Continuity and Resilience Today conference in Toronto, October 7th and 8th. Then I will be speaking at BCI World uh, in Birmingham, UK, November 5th and 6th. And fingers crossed, we hope to be able to do another live broadcast from DRJ Phoenix, the fall conference, uh, September 28th to 30th. I think the Monday is the 28th, so we'll try, see if we can uh, schedule another live broadcast. Of course, that depends uh, on making sure that nothing gets cancelled and that we're able to travel again, but fingers crossed, I will be at uh, all three of those conferences. Now, uh, today's topic, I have no guest I'm going to be talking today, so we'll see how long my voice lasts. Uh, Usually it gets a little dry, or uh, you may hear a few seconds of uh, dead silence, and that's usually me just taking a sip of water. Still, uh, recently, uh, the International Emergency Management Society, or TEAMS, released an interesting newsletter. Uh, A lot of it had to do with the COVID-19 or coronavirus situation. I am actually a member of the advisory board, I do a lot of the uh, special edition newsletters. It's been a bit tough lately for me to uh, take on that, uh, considering work has been rather busy and current situation uh, and the radio show just don't allow me to have any extra time to dedicate towards this. So before I go too far, I have to thank Roman Tandlich, who is the team's chapter president for South Africa and a colleague in his university, Kellyanne Frith, who put all this together. Now, how this came about is the president of Teams, which some of you may remember, was my very first guest on the show uh, almost three years ago, uh, just a couple more months, and it'll be three years, uh, Mr. K. Harold uh, Drager. He was my first guest, and we talked uh, about Teams and some a lot of other subjects. He suggested that maybe we would have, uh, he and Rant Roman, I believe, uh, talked and said maybe it might be a good idea to have uh, some sort of an editorial or uh, informational newsletter 
from uh, the Teams group because Teams is full of a lot of academics uh, and different chapters from around the world. It does have uh, work practitioners as well as um, you know people that are quite a few are actually researchers and professors. So we thought that might be a good idea, and we reached out. Uh, to the various team chapter leads and uh, teams members and got a really good response. And this is going back a few weeks, uh, of course, um, roughly uh, mid-March or so when things really started to uh, take off globally, um, when countries started to shut down, close borders. Of course, some already had, um, but mid-March really seems to be the area when a lot of uh, countries and organizations really started to... Uh, act quickly and decisively. So we got a lot of feedback. Well, Roman got a lot of good uh, feedback from different groups, and they submitted uh, some uh, information from their regional uh, areas uh, where where they live. And we got information from, uh, let's see, where's the list here? From uh, China, South Korea, Canada. You can probably guess who... Uh, wrote a quick article for Canada, Philippines, Northern Cyprus, Kashmir, Croatia, Belgium, Luxembourg, Netherlands, um, otherwise known as uh, Benelux for uh, people that are out there. We also got some information from Italy, Ukraine, Thailand, and the USA. So obviously you can tell there are quite a few uh, different teams, chapters uh, that are out there. It really is a uh, global um, organization. So what I want to do today is talk about this newsletter and some of the content because there are some interesting perspectives of what some countries did um, you know, in response to coronavirus and how they uh, planned for it or didn't plan for it. You know, some of the different viewpoints. So I've gone through this uh, newsletter. It's quite large, uh, 75 or 80 pages or something like that. So it's chock full of uh, a lot of information. And I do recommend anyone uh, out there listening to go to the teams.org, T-I-E-M-S dot org. And under one of the headings, there is uh, newsletters. And go there and look for the April um, edition of the uh, newsletter, not the special edition, but just the regular new, uh, newsletter uh, for April 2020, and you'll find this. Now, what I'm going to do today is go through each of these and just kind of touch on a few things that different organizations had said or, or different na nations had said uh, you know, um, with regards to coronavirus. Uh, obviously, there's going to be some repetition from uh, nation to nation, you know, with regards to what they did. So I went through here and just pulled out some of the uh, differences between uh, different countries or perspectives, as I didn't really want to repeat the same thing. You know, we closed binders, we shut down airports, and, you know, some of the things we, we're all used to hearing, you know, on a daily basis and are probably experiencing right now. So I'm going to go through some of those of what uh, each country ha has said. Uh, and considering it's 80 pages and, you know, when we've got a dozen countries here, there's a chance <laughs> I may not get through all of them. And we may have a part two to this. But anyway, let's get started before we go on too much. 
Uh, a quick note about TEAMS, the International Emergency Management Society. I just wanted to tell you some of the things that TEAMS does, and this is some of the information that Harold Drager, the TEAMS president, uh, has um, provided. TEAMS organizers, uh, sorry, TEAMS organizes international conferences, workshops, exhibitions uh, worldwide with a focus on emergency management and disaster response topics. Teams engages in research and technology development projects that enable Teams members to apply their expertise to international emergency management initiatives. The Teams International Group of Experts comprises of 120 experts from 22 countries, of which I'm a part of that, by the way, uh, representing um, mostly the business continuity uh, area. Uh, with wide-ranging expertise and experiences available to assist with emergency preparedness, planning, and responses worldwide. And we actually do have some members who are part of emergency response teams that have uh, been a part of the earthquake in Nepal and some other disasters. Teams education and training comprises the Teams Academy with courses in emergency management and disaster response and Teams International Certification, which is the Teams uh, QC, TQC. Um, teams Qualification Certification, I think it's, it stands for. And my apologies to those workings on TQC, if I've got that wrong. So that, that's just a little bit about Teams. I just wanted uh, everyone to know that. Now, let's get straight to um, something else that uh, the president uh, gave in part of uh, the editorial. And I want to read this a uh, little bit here because this is an excerpt from taken from uh, September 2019. And it was written by Gro Harlem uh, Brundtland. I'm, I hope I'm saying the name right. Uh, my apologies if I'm not. He was the former prime minister of Norway. And El Hajj Assai, secretary... Uh, General of the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies. And what they, uh, what they wrote in September, it's going to be really uh, surprising because this is in advance of what we heard from China. It's in advance of what happened in January, February, and into March. So this is what they said back in September. For too long, health emergencies have been met with a cycle of panic and neglect an approach that is putting all of us at growing risk. Governments worldwide must start thinking ahead and increase funding at the community, national, and international levels to shore up health systems to shore up health systems and prevent the spread of outbreaks. Imagine the following scenario. In a matter of days, a lethal influenza pandemic spreads around the world, halting trade and travel, triggering social chaos, gutting the global economy, and endangering tens of millions of lives. Such a large-scale disease outbreak is an alarming but entirely realistic prospect. To mitigate the risk, the world must take steps now to prepare. Uh, now, that was written in September of 2019. You know, it, uh, as Harold says uh, later on, that was kind of a warning that basically went ignored. Well, look at where we are now. You know, um, I, I thought that was rather interesting that, you know, they, people say that, you know, nobody could have predicted uh, coronavirus, yet people were predicting. We just didn't want to hear it and maybe didn't want to admit that something like this could happen to us. But it did happen.
and look where we are now. Right now, as recording this, this is uh, roughly the first half of May. You know, so we've been into this for a few months now. So, rather interesting. Uh, I, I was I have that highlighted in pink highlighter here, so that everyone knows uh, what's going on there. <laughs> now. Let's start moving to some of the uh, editorials and information that has been provided. The first one, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic stories and the role of teams uh, in the related emergency management field is by Roman Tandlich uh, from Rhodes University in South Africa. Now, some of you may remember uh, Roman was on the show a few months back where we talked about uh um, some challenges in South Africa when it came to water and some of the uh, drought that's occurring there. Uh, a very good show. I recommend taking a, a listen to uh, what Roman and his team has been doing. Um, he had some co-authors here, Emma Chapman and Renee Uthusian. I hope I'm saying those uh, that name right. But they represented uh, the entry from South Africa. Now, I want to uh, read uh, something that is in the newsletter that he had mentioned. Um, Local practices and the need to share solutions of COVID-19 through appropriate platforms. The nature of the DRM program, disaster uh, management problems and challenges for which solutions are to be found, are based on the disaster setting. Climate change has brought about changes worldwide. The United Nations Development Program in 2019 states that Variations in precipitation, change in temperatures, and extreme weather patterns are altering the levels of hazard and increasing disaster risks. The Northern Hemisphere has seen an increase in severe floods and thunderstorms, and the Southern Hemisphere has had droughts that have plagued Australia and South Africa for many years. Now, I mentioned uh, just a few moments ago that Roman was on the show talking exactly about that. Challenges in doing simple things, such as opening a tap and getting free-flowing drinking water safe uh, for domestic use, has now arisen, those living in the Southern Hemisphere. Therefore, performing hand hygiene as a major prevention of the COVID-19 spread could pose a challenge in some areas of the Southern Hemisphere, Uh, for example, the African continent. So it's uh, rather interesting here how they point out that COVID-19... You know, because we haven't addressed other programs, uh, like a tap with, for uh, everybody, you know, with clean flowing water for everyone, COVID-19 could actually uh, compound the, the health of those people who are already suffering, you know, through drought. And now COVID-19 could be even more devastating. I, Roman goes on to say, The management of the spread of COVID-19 virus and similar respiratory conditions becomes almost impossible to manage in crowded places and one-bedroom houses. Now, a lot of places around the world, you know, uh, especially impoverished nations, uh, you know, they live in one-bedroom apartments or cramped uh, quarters where large families are just in, um, you know, one single space. So if coronavirus, uh, I don't want to say catches on, but spreads in these areas, it could be unbelievably devastating. Now, it's yet to see what's going to happen um, on the African continent as of me talking. Um, By the time you hear this in a uh, few weeks, you may hear a completely different story. But as of right now, 
Um, even though COVID-19 is on the African continent so far, knock on wood, um, that you know it has not taken off uh, as terribly uh, or as expected at this time. Roman goes on to say, a disaster of a large scale, uh, as stated by the UNDP that I mentioned earlier, can result in a loss of employment, economic slowdown, and decreased entrepreneurial activity, which ultimately pushes more people into poverty. So this makes people even more vulnerable to uh, COVID-19. And the Human Rights Watch in 2020, um, the International Human Rights Law specifically uh, specifies that of the International Covenant on Civil Rights and Political Rights allow the UN members to impose restrictions on rights of individual citizens during states of national emergency. More specifically, these rights can be limited in the case of public health emergencies. So, you know, that means you know, a lot of groups or nations, I should say, should be able to, you know, do something about saving their citizens. Um, the drawback for that is uh, somewhere down the road, Sometimes people that have the taste of power, you know, that Im implemented these restrictions sometimes uh, don't want to let it go afterwards. Now, we're going to see that, I'm sure, in some of uh, the de democracies in Europe and uh, other nations, uh, North America and other places around the world, where some of these restrictions were put in place and governments uh, had some stronger powers, so to speak. And it'll be interesting to see um, if they're willing to let them go or how they disguise those uh, changes now and uh, you know th those limiting the freedoms and assembly you know and you know how we can say that uh, we're limiting the uh, large groups here you know for safety purposes yet you know and and sanitation reasons which is uh, reminds me a lot of the uh, gatherings with the um, uh, the one percent movement where uh, there were campouts and, you know, they were broken down, people were taken away, arrested, charged, whatever, saying sanitary reasons, you know, safety reasons. Uh, yet when it happens in other countries, um, my country included, will turn around and say, oh, let people gather and, you know, uh, express their freedoms. So it's interesting how, um, you know, it's interpreted, you know, to do the exact same thing. But COVID-19 is changing a lot of that perception right now. And that, well, that was a lot to say, and I've only gone through uh, two pieces of the newsletter so far, uh, the editorial and uh, some comments from South Africa. So we're going to come to the end of the first of our uh, three segments, and we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Today, many doctors prescribe basic pharmaceuticals to their patients who aren't feeling well or have various aches or pains. Is this the right course of action for all patients? Definitely not. Find out about healthy, natural ways to help you feel your best by tuning in to the CBD Ed Show with host Edward Cheney. Ed will explain full-spectrum CBD, where the whole hemp plant can be used for treatment, and answer all of your questions about CBD and natural treatment in general. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Your pets play a major role in your life. After all, they're as much a member of the family as anybody else. Now there's a show that will show you how to keep them healthy and living their life to the fullest. Healthy Tales with Dr. Mondrian Contreras. We'll talk about veterinary health and help you understand the wellness and treatment plans that you need to know about your best friend. 
Listen every Wednesday to Healthy Tales at 9 a.m. Eastern Time and 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Join Chris Epting every week for the moment. Chris talks to some of the most amazing people you'll ever meet, including authors, artists, and athletes. And that's just the A-list. These celebrities and public figures have interesting stories that all showcase the moments that their lives took a certain dramatic turn, changing them forever and shaping them to be the person that they were meant to be. Listen for The Moment with Chris Epting, Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. From early saltwater action to hometown catfishing hotspots and the latest innovations in firearms and ammunition, The Revolution with Jim and Trev this week is going buckwild outdoors with their panel of pros. Hanging out on the airwaves is Captain Jack Carlson of Two Conks Sport Fishing, Eric Poole from Guns and Ammo, Cat Daddy, and Mrs. Bunny. The Revolution is presented by Outdoor Channel, Sportsman Channel, World Fishing Network, and My Outdoor TV. Saturdays at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullock. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. And welcome back to the show. We are talking about the latest edition of the International Emergency Management Society newsletter that talked about uh, COVID-19 and some perspectives and some ideas that came from the various chapters around the globe. Uh, I've already talked about South Africa and the editorial from our um, president, uh, who is in Norway, by the way. So we've knocked off two countries. Um, well, not knocked off. I think you know what I mean. <laughs> and uh, the next one I want to talk about is an interesting one, uh, China. Now, I know there's all kinds of conspiracy theories out there, and I'm not going to get into them. Uh, leave that for somebody else uh, to bring forward. Uh, I'm not really interested in any of that. So uh, here's what uh, our um, uh, Gushang uh, Kyu uh, provided. He is a member of the team's board of directors. He's actually our team's vice president uh, and president of the China uh, chapter. Now, he goes on to say that the first uh, COVID-19 uh, case was discovered uh, December 8th in Wuhan uh, in 2019. You know, uh, up to uh, January 18th, I could, what, what's, I hope I'm saying the name right, uh, Mr. Zong Nanshen, a very famous pandemic doctor of China, was invited to Wuhan um, to investigate COVID-19 and uh, uh, what was going on and uh, have an idea of uh, how to handle this, you know, and uh, they they had uh, decided that by January 23, you know, it was time to lock down uh, this, the uh, city of Wuhan, which uh, many of you may not know uh, is 11 million people. So, 
I'm not sure if it's uh, slightly above that or below that, but uh, 11 million people, that's a lot of people to lock down. You know, I live in a city with uh, 150,000, and uh, I cannot imagine how a city of 11 million can be locked down. China went on to uh, build two military hospitals, uh, Hushanshan and uh, Lishanshan. I'm probably saying those wrong. My apologies to all our Chinese listeners, um, which were built, believe it or not, in 10 days in Wuhan. Now, I know we saw some of this on the news uh, as they were building them. Um, from January 23rd to February 1st, uh, the whole whole of China celebrates Spring Festival. And, uh, you know, I, even I see uh, here where I live and in Toronto down the road, you know, there are different festivals here. But uh, that had uh, people on the move all over the place in China. So uh, Gushan goes on to tell uh, that 5 million people traveled to their hometown from Wuhan City, which initiated um, the entire China became a high risk because so many people were traveling from Wuhan that may or may not have been uh, infected by COVID-19. So that's, that's you know, half, let's take the, the city, ha almost half the population of that city. And let's say they were, I'm not saying they are, but let's just say for argument's sake, they were infected. They spread throughout the country and traveled to celebrate a festival. That's uh, like a lot of people at Christmas. You know, where we all travel uh, to go see our families or, or friends or something like that. And, uh, you know, a lot of us are infected. And you can imagine, you know, when somebody shows up with a cold, what ends up happening to everybody else in the household? Well, that's what uh, Gushang uh, goes on to describe here. He also says that over 3,000 doctors and nurses were infected by COVID-19. That's astounding. Um and about 40,000 doctors and nurses from other provinces within uh, China, you know, from other areas, uh, were mobilized to go to Wuhan City to help. You know, and he also mentions that uh, President uh, Xi Jinping organized and commanded directly, you know, and uh, uh, when I was in China many years ago, uh, about 2009 or so, which actually was the Teams conference, when I first got involved with the uh, team's advisory board of directors and doing the newsletter. They had, uh, I was in a command center and uh, sat in the chair <laughs> where the uh, person in charge usually sits and runs um, the disasters in China. And this specific, specific command center was the one that was used for the earthquake in uh, Chengdu, um, not Chengdu, uh, Sichuan uh, province there. So and that was rather uh, interesting to sit in that chair. So uh, if uh, President uh, Xi Jinping was there, then uh, I'd sat in his chair. Um, I don't know if that's true, but, you know, it's kind of a neat claim to fame to say that. There were a couple of other things that uh, China implemented. And now, obviously, China was one of the first to implement anything. I don't care what anybody says. They were um, the first country to really implement some tough measures. And I'm going to go through some of the things that uh, they did uh, right off the bat, which, you know, whether anyone wants to admit it or not, the rest of the world started to, to adopt in one form or another. You know, we did, let's face it. So here's uh, what he provided that they uh, immediately did at a high level. Um, when you travel or meet someone in the office, worksite, street, or any public place, you must wear your face mask. 
And if you were in a high-risk area or with some high-risk persons with COVID-19, you also need gloves. Um, number two, when you're in a high-risk environment, for example, in an elevator, open the door or light switches uh, uh, off office and building, restaurants, restrooms, the gasoline dispenser, etc. Use a small piece of paper towel to touch the buttons of the elevator or the light switches, you know, and push uh, the buttons that you need to, to do. You know, don't use your bare hand and don't grasp handles unless there is really no other way to do it. You know, but as the previous mention uh, noted uh, in number one, everyone should be wearing gloves anyway. Keep social distancing one to two meters when you buy something in supermarkets or takeout from restaurants or in the entrance of any kind of uh, security like airports, uh, um, building entrances or some other situation uh, like that grocery shopping. Um, when you have a meeting in the office, have a lecture in the classroom or any other place where COVID-19 could outbreak, keep distance. Now, at that part, at that time, not everything had closed yet. So, um, obviously, that came a, a little bit later. Number four, use disinfectant wipes at the stores uh, when they are available, including wiping the handle of uh, grocery carts. I know many places, even when I go grocery shopping here, they have someone who uh, is continuously wiping the handles and uh, if we're wearing gloves or not. Number five, wash your hands uh, with soap for 10 to 20 seconds whenever you return home from any activity that involves visiting locations where other people have been. Six, keep alcohol-based wipes at your home and in your car for use after getting gas or touching other uh, contaminated, potentially con contaminated objects. You know, immediately wash your hands. I know I've got hand sanitizer in the car, uh, in the kitchen, in the bathroom, living room. You know, there's a little container everywhere. And during the outbreak, stay at home as much as you can. Try to prevent attending or participating in any public activities. Now, obviously, um, with what I had said a few moments ago, with the Spring Festival going on, people were traveling, you know, um, before some of this got implemented. So it was, uh, you know, pretty tough you know, uh, for China. And again, you know, if there's any uh, conspiracy theories out there, please, you know, feel free to uh, express them, but I'm not going to address them here. <clears throat> so, um, Wuhan basically shut down, you know, for two months, you know, and it has slowly been reopening. And I hope uh, the people of Wuhan and China and anyone impacted can slowly get uh um, their lives back to uh, some semblance of um, a consistent state. Again, I don't want to say normal because with so many people that have lost their life, there's no way you're going to go back to, you know, normal. You know, you just have to find some semblance of stability and move forward. The next one uh, is actually from South Korea by Young Jai Lee. Uh, most of these, as I said at the beginning, were submitted at uh, the beginning of April, even though the request sent, was sent out uh, before that, but uh, everything was sent out beginning of April, and then uh, coordinated, put together, and published uh, mid to late April. Um, and this one is uh, was done, uh, where is it, editorial review, April 16th. So, as of April 8th, uh, they had... Uh, 201 deaths and uh, under examination 20,650 uh, people that were examined for 
uh, examined for the virus. What South Korea did differently, and I'm sure we you saw this on the news, they tested uh, all persons linked to any kind of major cluster. So mm. it didn't matter, um, as they say in this uh, submission, regardless of any clinical symptoms, they went ahead and tested everybody. You know, I know a lot of countries, including uh, my own here, they'll only test people if you've got the sniffles or you've got a headache you know, or some of the other symptoms or a combination of the symptoms. South Korea tested everybody. It didn't matter. Currently in South uh, Korea, there is a total of 118 institutions available for diagnostic tests. Uh, Korea Centers for Disease Control Prevention, uh, National Quar there's one of those, National Quarantine Stations, there's four of them, Institutes of Health and Environment, 18 locations, private clinical lab laboratories and hospitals, 95. Uh, on an average, 15,000 tests can be performed per day. Now, I know some places around the world, they're struggling to get 10% of that done a day. So, and we've all seen in the news how South Korea uh, handled that. You know, it, it did not spread um, like the, the, the fears were for it. There's something else in the Korean part that I wanted to point out um, that I thought was rather interesting, and I'll read it to you. If necessary to prevent infectious diseases and block the spread of infection, the Minister of Health and Welfare may request the relevant head of the National Police Agency, I repeat that, National Police Agency, Regional Police Agency, and police stations established under Article 2 of the Police Act, you know, goes on, they can do what they need to do. They don't need to wait for someone to tell them, okay, stop doing this. They can step in. Uh, I, I don't want to say take charge, um, but they can step in to make things happen. You know, So if you're not adhering to the rules um, that have, hopefully temporary rules, that have been implemented to ensure people's safety, they can step in, fine you. You know, and make you stay at home. You know, I, I don't know. Maybe that means locking your doors or something, or sitting out front. I don't know what that might mean, but it does allow the police to get involved to protect other people. So if you're sick, you can't just determine, well, too bad, I'm going to work anyway and infecting everyone. No, the police have the power to make sure you stay at home. And considering some of the things we've seen uh, around the globe, um, that that might might, you know, I use air quotes here, might uh, be a good idea. There was a, a paragraph here that I think was interesting too, and it had to do with contact management. Uh, Korea has a relatively low fatality rate for COVID-19 cases. What special strategies do you believe in contributed to achieving this? Now, that's a question they ask. And then the people that responded said, as the number of patients rapidly surged in Daega, Daegu, Daegu City and Gyeongbuk province starting in late February, uh, which caused a shortage in healthcare resources, we created a new system for allocating hospital beds based on the severity of the patient. The system enabled more medical resources to go to the more severe patients in need of urgent care, allowing more efficient treatment and management of patients in addition, 
Persons who are considered, considered high-risk groups are classified as severe patients regardless of clinical symptoms, so they can receive timely care if needed. So if you were in a large crowd and some of that crowd uh, was infected, they're going to treat you the same way as though you are infected. So that's kind of a, a proactive approach rather than, well, well, let's see if you start showing any symptoms and then we'll deal with everything after that. So I thought that was rather interesting that they, they took that approach. And the next one is uh, the COVID situation in Australia. And this was submitted uh, by Brian Holcheck Hol Hol uh, of the uh, Australian Teams chapter. Now, Australia, um, they had a couple of uh, different things to, to say here. Uh, the actions, the pandemic uh, decisions and actions were formulated by a national cabinet, uh, cabinet established on March 13th. Now here you see where we're getting to the mid-March where things started to really um, happen around the globe. Com uh, which compromi compromised, uh, sorry, comprised of the Prime Minister and all state and territory premiers and chief ministers. Um, the, the National Cabinet is basically the Council of Australian Governments. Now, what they, some of the things that they did, uh, they limited uh, the public gatherings in Australia, of course, um, going to work, uh, you know, or education, basically stay at home, shopping for essential supplies, uh, such as groceries, uh, and then, you know, ask people to return home right away. Going out for personal exercise in the neighborhood, on, on your own or with one other person, you know, and you could go out with attending medical appointments um, or compassionate visits. Of course, after that, that was it. No more. You know, stay at home. You know, I know that's tough for uh, quite a few people, but, uh, you know, they had the same thing. As of, uh, I think this was uh, written, submitted April 5th. As of April 5th, they had a total of 5,635 cases of COVID-19. And it's broken down here uh, by province, including Tasmania. You know, how many people uh, were uh, impacted here. Um, the following facilities were restricted from opening from midday local time, March 23. So this is uh, 10 days after um, the initial uh, council um, committee had uh, been put together. Pubs, um, licensed clubs, uh, you know, hotels, you know, gyms and indoor sporting venues, cinemas, entertainment venues, casinos, nightclubs, uh, restaurants, cafes were all restricted to takeaway and or home uh, delivery. Now, takeaway, that means pickup for those of us in North America, and just in case uh, you're wondering. Um, and we see all those adverts all over the place. You know, uh, restaurants are open, but they're only open in uh, specific ways, which is the, you know, takeout and uh, delivery. And on March 26th, this was extended. These restrictions were extended to food courts, except for takeaway, auction houses, real estate auctions or open houses, personal services like beauty nail, nails, tanning, waxing, tattoos, Spa and massage parlors, uh, amusement parks, arcades, and uh, play centers, whether they be indoors or outdoors. 
you know, um, and this one makes me chuckle a little bit, but it's really serious. Strip clubs, brothels, and sex on premises venues. Now, I'll let your mind, you know, think about that one. Uh, galleries, national institutions, historic sites and museums, health clubs, fitness centers, yoga and spin facilities, saunas, bathhouses, wellness centers, swimming pools, community facilities such as community halls, libraries, you know, gaming and gambling uh, venues, so casinos, indoor and outdoor markets. Now that was an interesting one because that's one of the uh, thoughts of where the coronavirus started in Wuhan. So, uh, and weddings, at the time, weddings could be conducted uh, with no more than five people. Now, I don't know if that's still the case, or if, like many places, um, weddings now, uh, like funerals, uh, are simply done online. You know, there is no uh, attendance anymore. Essential gatherings, um, or things that were uh, allowed, were uh, workplaces where people could not work home, but were essential services, healthcare settings, pharmacies, you know, grocery stores, uh, schools and universities where you cannot study from home. Now, I think that one actually changed and everything went to uh, online, but I'm not sure. Uh, public transportation and all airports um, were eventually closed. You know. So uh, as of March 30th in Australia, uh, 213.6 billion from the federal government 11.8 billion from the states um, and 105 billion um, in government lending has been invested. That's a lot of money. Let's face it. You know, that is a lot of money and we haven't seen and I don't even know if it's going to be able to, uh, if you're going to be able to calculate the economic impact of uh, COVID-19 overall. But on that, we've come to the end of our second segment. We're talking about some COVID-19 perspectives from around the globe based on the International Emergency Management Society's latest newsletter. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Today, many doctors prescribe basic pharmaceuticals to their patients who aren't feeling well or have various aches or pains. Is this the right course of action for all patients? Definitely not. Find out about healthy, natural ways to help you feel your best by tuning in to the CBD Ed Show with host Edward Cheney. Ed will explain full-spectrum CBD, where the whole hemp plant can be used for treatment, and answer all of your questions about CBD and natural treatment in general. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Your pets play a major role in your life. After all, they're as much a member of the family as anybody else. Now there's a show that will show you how to keep them healthy and living their life to the fullest. Healthy Tales with Dr. Mondrian Contreras. We'll talk about veterinary health and help you understand the wellness and treatment plans that you need to know about your best friend. Listen every Wednesday to Healthy Tales at 9 a.m. Eastern Time and 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Join Chris Epting every week for the moment. Chris talks to some of the most amazing people you'll ever meet, including authors, artists, and athletes. And that's just the A-list. 
These celebrities and public figures have interesting stories that all showcase the moments that their lives took a certain dramatic turn, changing them forever and shaping them to be the person that they were meant to be. Listen for The Moment with Chris Epting, Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. From early saltwater action to hometown catfishing hotspots and the latest innovations in firearms and ammunition, The Revolution with Jim and Trev this week is going buckwild outdoors with their panel of pros. Hanging out on the airwaves is Captain Jack Carlson of Two Conks Sport Fishing, Eric Poole from Guns and Ammo, Cat Daddy, and Mrs. Bunny. The Revolution is presented by Outdoor Channel, Sportsman Channel, World Fishing Network, and My Outdoor TV. Saturdays at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullen. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. And welcome back to the show. Today we are talking, or I am talking, about the latest edition of the International Emergency Management Society, TEAMS, their April newsletter, which is all about coronavirus or COVID-19 from the various chapter representatives around the globe. Now, the next one that I wanted to talk about, and it'll be kind of quick because a big majority of uh, listeners are here in Canada and the United States. So a lot of what uh, I have to say about Canada is really uh, already known. So but a couple of uh, highlights that haven't been mentioned before. One of the things that uh, Canada uh, had uh, found was quite challenging is we have a lot of people that travel the globe. So as countries shut down, we found we had citizens uh, stuck in uh, many places, countries that, where airports were closed or um, you know they couldn't uh, get out of the country because of borders were closed or... Um, plain and simply, they were you know, hiking somewhere off in the wilderness and had no idea what was happening and eventually would get back somewhere and find out that suddenly there they were on the last of their money, you know, at the end of their visas, you know, ready to leave, catch airplanes and found that they couldn't, couldn't leave and couldn't go anywhere. And I know that's happened to many uh, people around the globe, but that uh, specifically for Canada, that was on our, our news quite a bit. So we had to uh, repatriate quite a few citizens and uh, negotiated airplanes with con- countries, uh, with flights going to countries that had closed their airports. Um, there were a lot of people uh, stuck in Europe. There were uh, quite a few stuck in um, Morocco. Um, China had some, and we had to uh, negotiate, obviously, with the governments to send uh, special airplanes in to pick these people up and bring them home. When they came home, they were automatically put into uh, quarantine. You know, and this included those um, that we saw on the news channels that were stuck on uh, cruise ships. You know, there were quite a few of the, these uh, 
cruise ships. Now, I've always known from people that uh, I, I know work either work on a cruise ship or have been on quite a few uh, cruise ships, they call those, uh, you know, floating Petri dishes. Now, I don't mean that in a negative way. Um, it's the same for me when I get on an airplane. You know, the first day when I get off a plane, I always feel stuffed up. You know, and that's just because of the recirculated air. It doesn't mean anything bad, and I'm not uh, putting anyone down. So um, don't send me any emails. But we had that uh, uh, problem uh, for quite a while, as, you know, there had to be obviously a lot of negotiations between various governments and the right people talking to each other to let airplanes fly there, for one, and then, you know, screen those people as they got on the plane and then bring them home and then determine where they were going after that. So that was a an interesting challenge. Um, obviously, uh, you've probably heard, as many governments have done, there was quite a bit of uh, stimulus, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars um, going to various programs, paying people because all of a sudden they could not work, um, not because of any fault of their own, assistance with rentals um, or deferral payments for loans and, you know, things like that. So... Um, these different stimulus uh, packages were implemented by the government, uh, of which uh, our Prime Minister Trudeau uh, is, does a daily uh, news conference. I think it's 11.15 every day, giving an update as to what's happening, um, you know, in the new different challenges that occur. And um, I have seen people who just complain about, you know, every single thing any government does. However... I just wanted to point out, you know, sometimes uh, you have to do a blanket policy or procedure and then work on the details, uh, you know, as cases come up, you know, and deal with them case by case. Or, you know, if you have a policy to um, whatever it may be, but it covers 80% of people, well, then implement it right away. Then you start breaking out and dealing with the 20% that, you know, that doesn't apply to or doesn't uh, effectively cover the remaining 20%. I, I think it's unfair of anyone, you know, regardless of your political leanings, to criticize, you know, uh, so-and-so should have thought of this, should have thought of that. Well, if that's the case, you know, let's face it, we know how fast governments work. If they had to deal with every single case and have an answer for every single what-if before they could implement a program, programs would never get implemented. Let's face it, you know. So I know that's been happening with uh, various governments around the globe, you know, uh, not just here in Canada, but I know that's been happening here. Um, and really, you got to have a blanket statement first and do some blanket procedures and then deal with the one-offs or the, you know, the smaller uh, groups afterwards. A lot of people here in Canada, we are work from home. You know, uh, I am. I've been working at home for the last uh, six, seven weeks now. And I got to tell you, I love it. I absolutely love it. Um, I find I get more done. There's less interruptions. The only downfall that I'm finding with coronavirus is that a lot of management now seem to have this impression that because people are working from home, they're more readily available and start booking early day meetings. You know, I've seen meetings for 7.30 in the morning, you know, and other people are booking late day meetings, you know, 4.30, 5 o'clock. So people are, are working longer, you know, by working at home, which uh, isn't right. 
you know, just because people are home doesn't mean they should be able to work more, you know, and be available more. Um, I don't think that's fair, but that that's uh, been a byproduct of um, people working from home and having so many people work from home now. And of course, uh, you know, I it, I would be I wouldn't be doing a lot of people justice if I didn't acknowledge, you know, especially here in Canada, uh, the work being done by healthcare professionals and you know not just doctors and nurses, but the, you know cleaning staff and people that deliver food. You know, people that are working in grocery stores and even civil servants who are working in the backgrounds, making sure that government programs are working, you know, <coughs> excuse me, uh, you know, to develop these programs. You know, they, things don't happen overnight yet. Somehow, you know, they these civil servants, you know, that may be working from home for all I know. I don't know. Uh, one of the challenges they had is they had to get some of these programs up and running, you know, and the technology behind it very fast or modify existing technologies very fast and you know kudos to all these people uh, that have been working overtime and you know working their fingers to the bone want to save lives and want to take uh, care of those you know that aren't sick but still need to move on and uh, get things done like civil servants in the background you know working on processes and technologies and different things like that you know, you know, there's so many supporting systems and supporting groups behind those that we see. So all those that are still working, you know, trying to help everybody out, you know, kudos to everyone, especially, you know, most notably, of course, the frontline people who are literally facing the, you know, the potential of illness and sickness, you know, face to face. You know, I've got to give them credit. So that's uh, what's happening. Oh, and my sister-in-law, by the way, works in one of these homes where there are uh, you know, so many illnesses and people dying. So makes me a little, uh, you know, keeps me on edge sometimes, and I'm always calling um, just to make sure that everyone is okay. So I didn't get very far in this newsletter. I guess there will be a part two. Um, but that's kind of what was going on here in Canada. And uh, we've got a lot of other places yet to uh, cover and some of the different things they had to say, um, which was rather, uh, some of this is uh, really interesting and in, uh, some of their viewpoints and what they thought. So I urge you to take a look at the teams.org site, T-I-E-M-S dot org, O-R-G, and have a look at the newsletter, see what it had to say. If there's a topic you want me to talk about at some point or have a guest on, let me know. Send me a message. You know, and don't forget, I will be at the Continuing Resilience Today conference, BCI World, and the DRJ conference in Phoenix. And hopefully that'll be a live broadcast. At any rate, uh, considering the time we're in, I hope everyone is staying safe. And, you know, in the meantime, stay prepared, everybody. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week.